This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. Give a big welcome to you. We are in a series on Colossians. We're actually finishing up that series. Colossians is a book in the New Testament. It's on page 573 in the Bible, in the seat in front of you or underneath you, uh, in the chair underneath you. You can take that Bible with you. That's a gift from us to you. If you don't have a Bible, please take that. And we're finishing up this uh this book of Colossians. And hasn't this been a great uh, study together as a church? Haven't we enjoyed this? This has been fantastic. Yes. Amen. Well, at least a few of you enjoyed that. Uh, have been enjoying it. Well, we're finishing up the, the book here together. But if you're brand new, I want to catch you up uh, by two verses in Colossians that kind of summarize what Colossians is all about. In chapter 2, verse 13, it says, And you... Who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What the cross is all about is that we have a a problem between us and God. We've committed trespasses and we've removed ourselves from God and we've removed ourselves from life because we've trespassed against him and sinned against him. And so we've got this debt problem and we've got this death problem. Debt on the outside of us, death on the inside of us. And through the cross, God takes this record of debt that stands against us with all of its legal demands and sets it aside, nailing it to the cross. So through faith in Jesus and faith only in Jesus, not faith plus all of your good works added to it, just faith in Christ alone, you and I are made alive together with him. And for the very first time in our story and in our life, we have life on the inside of us. And it's God's very life, God's life, God of very God, God who sends the Holy Spirit to us to give us life on the inside. And now we're forgiven and now we're free and now we have life. And that's what Paul's been talking about throughout the book of Colossians. And Paul is desperate for as many people in his limited lifetime to know this mercy of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. He is so desperate that people know the mercy of Jesus that he asks a lot of help from people. The ironic thing that we're going to see right at the close of chapter 4 as we close out this book is that helping people know Jesus requires asking people for help. We're going to see Paul ask for a lot of help. He puts big asks out there for people, and that's what desperation will do. Here's what we're going to see. Paul asks for help in three ways. Here's number one. He sends his friends delivering this letter, and that's one way, through his friends delivering the letter. That's verse 7 to 9. Through his friends who are staying back in Rome with him. He's writing this from a prison cell in Rome. And he's going to send his greetings from those friends. And he acknowledges help from those friends in verse 10 through 14. And then through his friends around Colossae in verse 15 through 18. So he gets help from his friends delivering the letter. From his friends who are staying behind with him in Rome. And from all of his friends around the city where this letter is going. So with that as our outline, let's pray and we'll jump in. Holy Spirit, we ask right now that you would open up our hearts to whatever you want to say to us. We surrender ourselves 
to you, Lord. Have your way in us. Show us Jesus. Show us grace. Show us mercy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, first, he acknowledges his help from his friends who are delivering this letter. Well, what friends? Look at verse 7. You'll see the name Tychicus. And in verse 9, you see the word Onesimus. Now, just by way of reminder, Paul has helped plant churches among the Greeks in Asia Minor, which is like modern-day Turkey, and he's planted several churches. But now he's not in Turkey. He's in what is now modern-day Italy in Rome. And he is under house arrest, which doesn't mean he had this really cool apartment and he was under surveillance. It means basically that he was in a jail that you could pay for. Uh, It basically was jail that you paid rent to instead of a dungeon where you died. The Roman government gave these concessions to prisoners that uh, instead of the dungeon, you can do this option and your friends can provide support and it can be kind of a revenue stream in the Roman government. They weren't afraid of people coming and hanging out with Paul. They weren't afraid of of him uh, being helped and and given food and resources and, and company and all that kind of stuff. That was fine with the Roman government and that's what's happening in Rome, where he's in prison under house arrest. He's about a year and a half into this current prison sentence, and he's chained to a guard at all times. So it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. It's uncomfortable physically. And for all of his friends that are greeting him, they're aware of his chains. They see, uh, you know, that, that there's a guard nearby constantly, and that's that's life for him, and that's been life for a year and a half, and for all he knows, it can go on for another year and a half. Eventually, he is released out, but jail uh, sentences were a common thing for the Apostle Paul as he spreads the gospel, and Christianity is illegal, at least the way that it is practiced among the early uh, Christians. Well, in verse 7, Tychicus he says, will tell you all about my activities. So even though he's extremely limited in this context, there's no more limited situation than being in jail. He's very active about the gospel. The kingdom is advancing. The kingdom has broken through, uh, through the gospel, and he is active, and he is busy about the work of the Lord. He doesn't go personally into what he's doing. He trusts Tychicus to do that. Tychicus is going to share all about what he's been uh, been up to. Verse 8 says, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That's what Tychicus was really good at, encouraging people, and he was a dependable person. He was a reliable person. Tychicus became a Christian through the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. So Paul planted a church in Ephesus, which is like the seedbed of community and activity. And Tychicus, you can hear that, that Greek-sounding word. He was a Gentile. He was considered outside of God's grace. But Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, and he shares the gospel. Tychicus becomes a believer, and he becomes a leader with Paul. And he's mentioned five times as a leader and an encourager in the New Testament. He was so dependable that... When Timothy is leading the church at Ephesus, Paul asked Tychicus to go and relieve Timothy so Timothy could come back to Paul and get more training. And uh, he could step into that work that was already established and help it grow and flourish. And the same is true of Titus. Titus plants a church on the island of Crete. Paul wants Titus to come back to him and get some more training and some more discipleship and more development. And so he sends Tychicus, his faithful and his dependable guy, over to Titus 
to give him some help. And so he's able to go into two very different contexts and help those things grow and flourish. And the reason he's able to do that is because he's dependable and he's an encourager. And when you are a dependable leader and you're an encouraging leader, you're very versatile and you get asked to do a lot of things in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ. And that's very, very true of Tychicus. So here he is. He's got the letter to the Colossians, and he's got another letter to Philemon, who's an individual who lives in Colossae. These are two books in the New Testament. We call them books. They're actually letters. And so Philemon is in your New Testament, just a few chapters, a few books later. It's just basically a page. takes you about seven or eight minutes to read it. And you've got the book of Colossians, and he's dependable. He's carrying these things to the church. All right, look at verse 9. He is joined by Onesimus. You never traveled alone in this dangerous journey in the early church because it's, it's very difficult. And uh, so he sends Onesimus with him. He says of Onesimus, he's our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, here's something very interesting about Onesimus. This is one of the reasons why I love the Bible, because the Bible is just not ashamed of its history. And, uh, and, and here's what's going on here. Onesimus, if you can handle it, is a converted fugitive when this is being written. With a warrant out for his arrest. How do we know that Onesimus is a converted fugitive? Because it doesn't say anything about that in Colossians. He's just described as a faithful and beloved brother, just a name that just appears on a list of names. Well, we know that from the other letter that these two guys are bringing to the church in Colossae. From the letter to Philemon, we learn all about his story. And here's the story very, very briefly. Philemon is a wealthy Greek who lived in Colossae. If you've got Ephesus right here, about 100 miles east of Ephesus is another really vibrant city named Colossae. And Philemon lived in Colossae. He was just this guy who traveled and and had a lot of money. And he traveled often to Ephesus. And when he's in Ephesus, he comes into contact with the Apostle Paul and he hears the message of Jesus. And he gets converted and he believes and he has his sin forgiven, united to Christ. And now he becomes a follower of Jesus through the message that Paul preached. He got to know Paul, and through Paul, got to know Jesus. Well, everything changes for Philemon at that point. He turns his entire life over to the Lord. And when you turn your entire life over to the Lord, you turn everything over to the Lord. And that was true of Philemon. He goes back to Colossae, to Colossae. Let me get this right. He opens up his home in the city, and he says, Paul, My home is available for a church plant. And from the book of Philemon, we find out that a church is planted in the home of Philemon. And and, and continues. And potentially, Epaphras, who's with the Apostle Paul and planted that church, maybe was the, the guy who Paul sent over to Philemon's house to plant the church over in Colossae. Well, at some point... This wealthy man has money stolen from a bondservant named Onesimus. He had several indentured servants. Onesimus was one of them. Onesimus steals a pile of money from Philemon and runs away 
to get away from the law and from Roman law. And if you're a fugitive and you're running away and you don't want to get caught, you go to a big, big city and you hide out there in the big, big city. And so, so Onesimus runs away, gets all the way to Rome. That's the biggest city of the day. And he's hiding out in Rome. Now, Rome is hundreds of miles away because it would have taken months for Onesimus to go from Colossae all the way over to, to Italy. So tur- from Turkey to Italy, essentially. He just goes all the way over there. He's hiding out. And in the providence of God, years later from when Philemon came into contact with the Apostle Paul, Onesimus comes into contact with the Apostle Paul when Paul is in Rome. I mean, you read all about the journey that Paul went in the end of Acts, and it took months, and it was this crazy adventure to get all the way over to Rome. Well, while he's there, he comes into contact with Onesimus, and Onesimus hears the gospel from Paul and gets saved, becomes a believer in Jesus through the same guy that his former boss believed through. And so we don't know how that happened. Was it was he hanging out at the jail? Was he, did he spend some time in jail? Was he a, a servant there? What, did he come in contact with some believers in Rome and they brought him to the Apostle Paul? Either way, Paul disciples Onesimus as a new Christian. And then Paul puts him on his team. Like his inner circle. He, he wants him on his team. Which if you think about it, for a guy to be able to go from like, you know, Turkey all the way to Italy and avoid, you know, the Roman government. I mean, he's probably like a Jason Bourne kind of a guy. He probably had a lot of skill and had a lot of game. Paul probably thought, man, this guy would make a great person on a church plant. And uh, the way he can navigate through things and hide out and duck out. And so, so Paul's like, this guy's on the team now. So he pulls him into the inner circle and sends him with Tychicus over to Colossae. And if I'm Tychicus, I probably feel pretty safe with a guy like Onesimus uh, around. Uh, Now, notice how he describes Onesimus. He describes him simply this way. Our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. One commentator said it this way. To the Apostle Paul... When he describes Onesimus, he simply introduces him as he might do any other Christian friend of whose honorable standing there is no doubt. The Apostle Paul says, as far as you need to know, Onesimus is a faithful, beloved brother. This is just one window into the way the Apostle Paul understands grace. Grace is stigma-free forgiveness. Grace is stigma-free forgiveness for fugitives who have run as far and as hard as they can from God, who have a past, who have a story, who can go back into the past and go back into the story with a brand new identity and a brand new creation and brand new life on the inside and a brand new ministry and a whole new purpose. And that's what Onesimus has. He has a new identity. He has a brand new purpose. And this is forgiveness. This is grace. This is the gospel. As far as this church knows, this guy is on the top level team with the Apostle Paul. 
And, and, and nobody knows his story except Philemon, who's in Colossae. And, and to that guy, you can read Philemon on your own. Paul says, let all the debt that he owes be, be given to me. Put it on my tab, Philemon. And he does. He, he forgives the debt. And it's this wonderful, beauty, beautiful story of reconciliation and of grace and of new purpose. So listen, there's, there's some people here today, I believe, that you think I've run too far for God to catch up to me. I've run too far. I've run too hard. I've run too hard. I've run too far. There's no way. I'm here physically present, but my heart has run from God. You haven't run harder than Onesimus, and you haven't run farther than Onesimus, and you haven't run harder or farther than anybody else in this room. Do not count yourself out from God's grace, because God doesn't count you out, and you're hearing his message of grace and mercy and love, and he's calling you and knocking on the door of your heart today to welcome his grace and his mercy into your life and change your entire story. And if you're, if you're a Philemon here today, and there's an individual in your life that's hurt you, burned you, insulted you, stolen from you. And you just are tempted to think this person is so far beyond the mercy and the grace of God. Consider the story of Onesimus traveling all the way home. He thought he would never go back to Colossae. The last place Onesimus ever thought he'd land again. And now he's going back with a mission and a calling and a purpose because Jesus can change anybody. So don't count yourself out and don't count anybody else out. Remember what the Apostle Paul said? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. In other words, nobody was. God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what's low and what's despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. How do we know that God can save your foolish kid? How do we know that God can save your unlikely neighbor How do we know that God can save your impossible relative? Because God saved you, dummy. God saved you. You ran and ran and you ran hard. And God came after you and and you didn't run outrun his grace. You didn't run faster or harder than God's mercy and his grace. And he turned you around and he wrote, rewrote your story and he's rewriting all of our stories. That's mercy and that's grace. And so just consider Onesimus. So he's receiving help from these two individuals. But notice who else he's receiving help from. Look at verses 10 through 14. He sends greetings from his friends who are with him. He wants the church in Colossae to recognize some friends. What friends? Well, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but look at verse 10. There's a person named Aristarchus, and then there's Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Verse 11, Jesus, who is called Justice. Very important, very important clarification. Thank you, Paul. That's a guy named Justice. Uh, Verse 13, Epaphras, who is one of you. 
is mentioned. Verse 13, uh, I'm sorry, verse 14, he mentions Luke, the beloved physician, and he mentions Demas. Six guys he mentions, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Let's talk about these guys real briefly here. Look at verse 10. Aristarchus is described as my fellow prisoner greets you. That's a very interesting title for an individual, but it seems that Aristarchus spent plenty of time with the Apostle Paul multiple occasions when he was in the clink. And he had lots of stories, doubtless, that he shared with Luke, who wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, all about the Apostle Paul. So Aristarchus, you can hear the Greek in there. He came to Christ through Paul, probably when Paul was in Ephesus or at some point when he's traveling. And he, he traveled everywhere with Paul. We know that he was with Paul in Ephesus because in Acts chapter 19, a very interesting story takes place when a riot breaks out because the message of Jesus is a threat to their economy. This guy named Demetrius catches wind that these Christians are teaching the exclusivity of Jesus. And so he causes this riot to take place where they're trying to basically kick the Christians out. And so they just, they, they, they try to get Paul into the theater and, uh, and basically tell him to go away or maybe stone him to death. We don't know what's going to happen in Acts 19. They're chanting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. Well, they can't get Paul, so they grabbed Aristarchus. <laughs> so, like, Aristarchus is mistaken for Paul, and him, him and his friend Gaius are in the theater, and who knows what they're thinking. They're thinking, man, we're going to, this is it. This is it for us. Uh, because there's a mob, and mobs are fickle, and they're, they do all kinds of crazy things. And in the mercy of God, this town clerk uh, shows up and says, man, we got to dismiss this, or um, Rome's going to come down on us. This is illegal, what we're doing. And the courts are open, so uh, if, if there's a problem with these guys, you know, take it up with them. And so they get spared, and, and they go back on mission together. And stories like that take place all throughout the book of Acts. And so his name shows up several times uh, of just on adventure with his friend Paul. And all kinds of stories um, happen when you're on ad- the adventure of the gospel. And so, so that's one guy. Look at, ver- look at uh, verse 10 also, Mark. Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. Well, backstory, Barnabas was the guy who believed in the apostle Paul when none of the other apostles did. Barnabas believed in Paul, brought him to the apostles. They were like, no way, this guy's, a, this guy's a murderer of Christians. Barnabas is like, yeah, but he's saved. He's been given a new name, a new identity, a new purpose. And I believe that God's on his life. I believe that he encountered Jesus. And so when nobody else believed in Paul, Barnabas believed in Paul. And Barnabas was a believer in people. Praise God for, for people who, who believe in others, even if they've got a past and a history. Well, Mark is the cousin of Barnabas, and he says here, concerning whom you've received instructions, and if he comes to you, welcome him. So there's this, this welcome of this guy, Mark, and he wants Colossae to know that Mark is now with, with me. And uh, the backstory to Mark is pretty interesting. On their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas head out to spread the gospel and to plant churches. So it's Paul and it's Barnabas. And at some point on this first journey, Mark hears the gospel, becomes a believer in Jesus, and joins the team. So now you've got Paul, Barnabas, and Mark. Everybody with me? Mark's with them. But then Mark takes off. At some point, there's a moment of weakness, and he heads for home. 
the journey is too difficult, the mission is too hard, I miss my family, whatever it is, he heads out and leaves the team hanging. They were depending on Mark, and Mark leaves and kind of flakes out on them, has a moment of, of weakness and leaves them. And so on the second missionary journey, they're discussing who should come along with them. There arose a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over Mark. And in Acts, we read this. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but, cho- but Paul chose Silas and departed. So this guy, Mark, is responsible for the first church split in history. How would you like that on your resume? I'm responsible. My insistence on being a part of the team, my insistence to be with my cousin Barnabas uh, and to prove myself worthy the second time around, you know, ended up causing a split between Paul and Barnabas. And they couldn't get together on this. This is essentially a philosophical disagreement on leadership qualifications. Listen, and philosophical disagreements take place in church life all the time. And if you're new to the church, let me just let, let you down uh, the hard way uh, right here out of the Bible. The problems take place all the time because we're sinners and we have different ideas on how things should take place and on methods and all that kind of stuff. They couldn't get they couldn't get it together. They couldn't see eye to eye. But the impulse of the New Testament and of the early church is that we've got to get the message of the gospel out there. People are lost and people are dying and this isn't worth it. We'll see together, you know, we'll see eye to eye later on. But right now, let's get the mission out there. Let's get the gospel out there and let's go. And so Barnabas took Mark with him. And they flourish, and they start advancing the gospel. Paul takes Silas, and they strengthen churches, both. So they actually end up multiplying their efforts because of something that was initially ugly and and challenging. And if you're part, if you've been a part of a church split, and you've, you've just got some painful scars from that, I hurt for you, and I feel compassion for you, and... Uh, but, but, but know that God uses even ugly church splits to spread the gospel and advance the kingdom. So that's, that's Mark. So, okay, so the people who are with him have a story, right? They have a history. They have a past. Uh, then we get to verse 11. Uh, Jesus, who's called Justice. We don't know anything about him except these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. So we know that justice was a comfort to Paul. Look at verse 12. Epaphras was also somebody who helped Paul tremendously. Uh, he was sent out on the original church plant to Colossae. And that's, that's why he says, Epaphras, verse 12, who is one of you. They all know who Epaphras is. Do you know why? Because Paul didn't plant the church in Colossae. He's writing this letter to help the church in Colossae, but he did not himself plant the church. He probably never even visited the church in Colossae. He wants to, but he is detained. He hasn't had a chance to. Epaphras comes to Paul while he's in prison and tells him about all the problems that are going on in Colossae. But Epaphras doesn't go back 
to Colossae. He sent these other guys. Epaphras will later on return, but for now he's not over there, and so he's sending a greeting from Epaphras. Verse 7 of chapter 1 says, You learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. They all know him. They love him. He loves them. They're separated from each other. And he goes on to say that Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That's what love drives you to do for people that you can't physically be next to. Love drives you to to prayer. When When you're hurting for those people, that person that you love so much and you're desperate for change to take place, it drives you to prayer. And that's what Epaphras did for the people of God in Colossae. He prays for them. He struggles for them. We, we even know what he prayed for. You can imagine Paul watching or listening to the way that Epaphras prayed that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. In other words, they were, they were tempted to be drawn away by false teachers. And Epaphras is praying constantly that they would just stand firm on the message of Jesus and in the gospel. Verse 13, for I bear him witness. I've seen him. I I witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So Epaphras may have planted the church in Laodicea and Hierapolis as well as Colossae. So this is a a guy that is used mightily. And we know how he was used mightily was through prayer. I heard a quote this week from a guy named Samuel Chadwick. He said this, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. He laughs at our toil and mocks our wisdom, but when we pray, he trembles. Spiritual power and things that we can't do on our own take place when we humble ourselves before God and we pray. And aren't we tempted to think that there's something else we should be doing? There's, it's our activities that ultimately cause those things But when we humble ourselves, that's when the kingdom moves forward. And Epaphras knew that. Epaphras knew that the power was in humbling ourselves and asking God to do and move and do what we can't do through prayer. Well, look at verse 14. It says, he mentions Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. So this is the Luke from the Gospel of Luke who also wrote Acts. So if you didn't know that, you've got the Gospel of Luke, which is a long gospel, and you've got Acts. Well, Luke wrote both of those. Luke was also a converted Greek, and he was a physician. Always good to have a physician on the mission team, right? Paul was smart. Paul was smart. He recruited Luke along as the physician, and he ended up being a historian because he's getting all these stories from all the team of all these adventures with Paul. 
So he wrote the Gospel of Luke, wrote the book of Acts, and Luke and Paul share a mutual passion for Jesus. That should come clear when you read the book of Luke and when you read Acts. There's a lot of detail about the Apostle Paul, but the hero of Acts is Jesus. And we know this, and we know that Luke was fascinated with Jesus and and loved Jesus because he, he writes at the beginning of Acts, he says this, he sets up the book this way, in the first book, which is Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, this next book is all that Jesus continues to do through the Holy Spirit in the church. And so he has a passion for Jesus. Luke and Paul uh, just have this mutual love for the Savior. And look at verse 14. We see Demas. Demas also greets you. So we don't know, you know, what Demas did. He was a high-level leader, and he also sends his greeting. The only other time he shows up in the New Testament to my knowledge, is 2 Timothy 4, where it's this sad commentary of a moment of weakness with Demas. It says in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So that was maybe where he was from. That was a place of great wealth. And so he could have had a pull and a draw and a drag back into the world where he was saved from, Demas. And so he, he like like Mark, may have had a moment of weakness uh, because he did abandon uh, the Apostle Paul. I've heard some, some people uh, question, is this a permanent thing? Like, did he just, was he not a true believer, kind of like Judas, just a pretender, uh, where this was like a permanent love for the world where he deserted uh, not only Paul but the faith? Or was this momentary like Mark? I personally believe that it's, that it's momentary, and I believe that there is, was a reunion somewhere down the road. But, uh, but this is a guy who in the future is going to have a challenge. And do you know it's possible to provide a lot of help for people like Demas was for Paul and not ask for help yourself? Have you ever found it difficult that people look to you to provide them a lot of help, but, but a challenge to humble yourself in front of those same people and ask them for help? That's what Demas needed. Demas was a helper. And spiritual leadership requires that we step in and we help people. But spiritual leadership also requires that we raise our hand as leaders and we say, I need help. Today's the day I'm, I'm in a fix and I'm challenged, and my heart's drawn to the world, or my heart's drawn to my past, or my, I'm tempted by this unique challenge. And we've got to lift up our hands and ask for help, even as we're helping others, because there's grace in that. There's always grace for, for folks who humble ourselves, when we humble ourselves with humility. Well, uh, lastly, look at verse 15 through 17. This letter's heading out to Colossae, but there's, there's work being done, gospel work being done around Colossae. So just by way of reminder, Colossae's planted out of Ephesus, and then you've got this city where the gospel is flourishing in several house churches. And from there, it's going out to Hierapolis and Laodicea, which are like towns that are six miles apart from there. It's just... This wonderful picture of the movement and the grace of the gospel meeting other towns and other cities. So, verse 15, he wants to send greetings to those churches. So, he says, 
Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Footnote, we don't have the, the letter to Laodicea. It was lost, and so we don't know what was written on that letter. Verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. So we've got Nympha, and we've got Archippus, who are in Laodicea. Who is Nympha? We don't know, but clearly she's a female leader who hosted one of the churches in Laodicea in her home. So she may have had a lot of wealth. She may have been a business person. She may have been a widow. Either way, she's got a house large enough for a church to meet in, and she's clearly a woman. And throughout the New Testament, throughout especially the book of Acts, you'll see that married women, single women, and widowed women in a unique way God uses in leadership in the church to move the mission and the message of Jesus forward. There's, there's parts where people just get stuck. Like I remember this, this, this time with this Apollos, this young, vibrant uh, hipster preacher guy named Apollos uh, starts preaching and he needs help. And so Priscilla mentioned first and Aquila bring him in, teach him the ways of God uh, better, just bring some discipleship and some wisdom into his life and send him out. Well, that happens throughout the book of Acts. And here, Nympha is a, a needed leader among the Laodicean church and vital for the mission of God there. Well, notice also that there's a guy named Archippus. Now, Archippus could just be a guy that we don't know anything about, except he shows up in the book of Philemon as Philemon's son. So it's just interesting. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you hear somebody's story at church, and you find out there's a connection to this person over here, and then you find out that that person's sort of connected over here. Somebody got married, and they moved out over here, and... uh, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Thank you. It's obvious. Thank you, thank you, Pastor. It's very obvious. But but Christianity flourishes in relationship. This is a relational religion because people hear the gospel from friends and family and they move out. Well, Archippus moved from Philemon's house out to Laodicea, and there he's a young leader and he needs help. Maybe Nympha is a part of that help. Maybe that's why they are connected together. At any rate, like Timothy, who was also a young leader, he was tempted to not fulfill the ministry and not step up into what God had called him to do. And so Paul has a specific word for Archippus. He says, see that you fulfill the ministry. Don't give it up. See that you fulfill it, that you've received in the Lord. You have a specific calling on your life, Archippus, and don't be afraid to to step out into that and to walk into that, Archippus. Well, here's how he closes out this section and how he closes out the entire book. Look at verse 18. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And you could say, wait a second, hasn't he been writing this? Actually, somebody else has been writing and he's been speaking and they've been dictating what he says, probably because he's chained up. So he's got chains physically on him, and so somebody else has been writing what he has been saying. But now in verse 18, 
He goes over to the document himself, takes the pen, and writes in his own hand. And so he kind of signs the letter. It says, I, Paul, writes his name, send you my own greeting with my own hand, his own handwriting. And his last words are, remember my chains. He's not saying, feel sorry for me. He's saying, I've taken up my cross to follow Jesus. And you've got to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And this is humiliating and this is shameful and this is uncomfortable. And this is discouraging. And this is a low point in my ministry. But it's also a high point in the kingdom of God. Because Jesus says, take up my cross and follow me. And that's what Paul is doing. And when we surrender to Jesus, when we take up our cross and we follow him, when we embrace the shame of the gospel, even to the point where at times there's this humiliating aspect to it, we encounter God's presence in a unique way. And that's what Paul encountered. And that presence is described as that last phrase, grace be with you. Paul is experiencing the grace of God chained up to a guard. The chains do not blanket out, do not cover up the grace of God that is over Paul and the grace that he is experiencing. See, he he began the letter of Colossians, grace to you, and he ends the letter of Colossians, grace be with you. So even though there's a cross to bear, Jesus says, the yoke is easy. Jesus says, come to me and you will find rest. Take my yoke upon you. When you take up the cross of Jesus, you'll discover that the yoke is easy for Paul and for us. And the burden is light when we realize that he is with us. And the movement is going forward. The message is going forward. The gospel is going forward. And we need help from others. And we need to ask help from others. And Paul did, and we need to as well. But the grace that we need the most and the help that we need the most comes directly from God, our Father. We look up to him and we say, Father, help us because of your Son over us and in us. Help us. So let's pray together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.